Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jane Grogan. Jane is the chief scientific officer of South San Francisco-based Arsenal Bio. Like the name suggests, Arsenal is putting together a stockpile of potent tools, weapons, if you will, of modern biology. As the company says about itself, quote, Arsenal will integrate technologies such as CRISPR-based genome engineering, scaled and high-throughput target identification, synthetic biology, and machine learning to advance a new paradigm to discover and develop immune cell therapies, initially for cancer, end quote. There are more than a couple powerful technologies packed into that tight little description. How they will be integrated together in a clever way to deliver that ultimate product, what it calls programmable cell therapies that are safer, more effective, and even cheaper and more widely available? Now that's a very tall order. It's a vision that will take many years to realize, if ever. Jane is a great person to discuss this moment of possibility in science and technology when entrepreneurs are able to dream big along these lines. She's an immunologist by training, and she came to Arsenal last year after a long and successful career in research and development at Genentech. You may also recognize her voice. While at Genentech, Jane founded and hosted the Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar podcast. As you'll hear in this episode, she's been practicing her science communication skills for a long time. It shows. Now, before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of The Long Run. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. And I'll be remiss if I forget to say that if you like the Long Run Podcast, you will love the Timmerman Report. For just $149 a year per reader, you get two to three in-depth analytical articles every week about the latest innovations and trends in biotech. You'll get to read my articles, but also benefit from the insights of an outstanding cast of contributing writers, including David Shaywitz, Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, and a few other excellent people I'm recruiting as we speak. Discounts are available for corporate groups, and bigger discounts are available for university libraries. Ask me about a group deal at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, please join me and Jane Grogan on The Long Run. Welcome, Jane Grogan, to The Long Run. Hey, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So Jane, I want to say first that uh, I'm really excited to have you here as a scientist, a scientific entrepreneur, but also one of these rare people who uh, has been part of the podcast community. <laughs> you had your own podcast, two scientists who walk into a bar um, from your past job at Genentech. Yeah, it was a great podcast and we had it for three years. It's still going, even though I've now left the organization. Um Two scientists walk into a bar and I got to sit on your side of the microphone and chat with people the way you do. So um, so thank you for having me on your show. I am a huge admirer of you both as a kind of a journalist, a podcaster and as a mountaineer as well. Well, thank you. One of the things that I want to say that I really liked about the Two Scientists podcast is that um, obviously you're this very credentialed, experienced scientist, but you had this interesting banter with your producer, Wellington, who would ask like basic kind of man on the street kind of questions. And you, you had a nice way of answering those in plain English. And that's just something I think I'd like to see more of just you know, in, uh, respectful and educational dialogue between scientists and the public. Yeah, I think it's really important. Communication of science and scientific ideas, it's storytelling and it should be storytelling. And when two scientists are together, you know, um, really breaking apart experiments or pushing biological thought, it can be a language in and of itself. But that, that language has to be communicated, those stories have to be communicated to the broader public. And so one of the things that I loved about the podcast that I had, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, is that we kind of tried to pitch it to, you know, high school kids who are reading things like the New York Times science section and, and above. And what was really remarkable is that we found that not only were students listening and, and potential employees for the company were actually using this as a reference, but I, as I travelled around the world giving talks um, for my job, people were listening to this in high schools in England as part of their science programs, and it was it had a really far-reaching um, audience, which was unexpected and really exciting. Wow, that's uh, that's more interesting than I even thought. So um, uh, who knows? Maybe these things will live on in the archives, and you'll get you know students calling you back in ten years saying you inspired them to start a career in science. Yeah. And one of the fun things we did was really try and interview um, some of these biological experts around what their kind of Star Trek moment was, like where they thought the field would be 10 years out from now, irrespective of their own work, um, just to try and get kids and students really excited about um, where and how they could jump into science and why it would be, you know, what was encouraging or exciting and or frontiers that they needed to come in and crack. So hopefully it's inspired a lot of young kids to come and um, move into the field and move us old fellows out and take over. <laughs> well, I don't think you're about ready to move out just yet. Uh, that's There's a reason I have you on the show and we'll get to that. But um, let you mentioned every, every scientist has a story. They got inspired somewhere along the line. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey. Um, your, your, from Australia, I can take from the accent. Absolutely. Uh, so where, whereabouts? So I grew up in a town uh, just south of Melbourne, a town called Geelong, uh, which is a blue-collar town, quite small, um, and uh, had a really kind of regular suburban life. And um, then I uh, always knew through high school that I was analytically oriented and really driven by science, 
and I went off to Melbourne University and did an undergrad in in science, majoring in pharmacology and biochemistry. Well, let's rewind a bit. You, yeah, you, sure. it, science, you, you caught the bug for this early, like in, in grade school, high school? High school. I was just good at analytics. And I didn't know, actually, as I was going through high school, if that would end up being a history major and writing or whether that would be science. And I was really... Um, um, I just really love physics and I really loved applied mathematics and somehow trying to understand the structured uh, rules around the world around me and around us was just really compelling. Um, so it was kind of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Plus in those days it was like <laughs> the school I was at, which is a fabulous school, it was like, oh, you're good at science, you should go off and do science. Uh-huh. Was this public or private school? It was a private school. Okay. And what did your parents do? My, both my parents were pharmacologists or pharmacists. They um, uh, were business people and they had um, a, a chain of pharmacies uh, around the area that we lived in. And um, yeah. So did they encourage this uh, budding interest in science and their, their teenage daughter? <laughs> they always encouraged all of us uh, to really follow our hearts and our passions. So they've always been supportive of my choices. Okay. Now how about teachers? Was there any person in particular who stands out? Um, the teachers really came more from my university years, actually. Um, there was there was one teacher, I, well, I should say at high school, there was one teacher I had who was um, uh, a physics teacher. And actually, I was one of two women in our class in physics. Uh, and uh, he left us alone while he taught the boys in the class. And so this girl and I, who was also coincidentally called Jane, really rallied together and managed to... Um, to uh, do really well in that. And that kind of taught me that some perseverance as well way back at high school. So so the leaving alone, that occurred in university? No, no, that was high school. Well, that was high school. Okay, so you <laughs> really do literally have to fend for yourself in <laughs> yeah. physics. Uh, and w- what did you decide to major in? So I decided to major in, in pharmacology and biochemistry. Um, and that was largely to do with the uh, uh, teachers I had at the time. And... Um, um, I had done a couple of years as, as quote-unquote a minor in German literature. I spoke German. I had been an exchange student in Germany um, as part of my high school experience. And um, I thought studying German literature in German would be fun. Um, and it was until a point, but then I had to make some decision around which direction I was going to take. And so <clears throat> I got really interested in um, pharmacology and... Um, uh, how different growth factors could affect the outcome of, I guess, cellular differentiation, or even though we thought about it in a different way back then. Even as an undergrad? Yeah, it was, it was slightly different. We were looking at, um, I did a, um, so in Australia, there's an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's, and then there's an opportunity to do an honours year, which is like a little mini master's. And I, and I did that at a place called the St. Vincent's Institute of Medical Research <clears throat> under a, a director who was quite a mentor to me, uh, Jack Martin, and who ran the institute. And this was the early days of cloning. This was the early days of uh, running uh, PCRs where you actually lifted by hand uh, uh, samples out of water baths to cycle it through, you know, very hot, medium hot, cooler uh, cycles. Late uh, 80s, early <laughs> 90s? Uh, somewhere around yeah, there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, uh, definitely late 80s. So, um, and I just 
got really excited about the scale at which one could do science. Um, having, you know, working from university into an, moving into an institute, the scale, the focus, the direction, um, and starting to realize that actually you could apply your scientific knowledge to patients and diseases. And I think that's when my interest in really focusing on the biology of human disease began to be very interesting to me. Now, you mentioned physics and applied math and analytics. That kind of quantitative rigor is not always found in, you know, budding biologists. Uh, did you, did, I disagree. No, okay, well, so, but you stayed with it. No, I stayed with it. I disagree because I think that, that thoroughness and that um, um, objectivity to do absolutely uh, reductionist, perfect, quote-unquote, experiments that are reproducible is is critical for rigor in any scientific discipline, um, not just physics and math, but also biology. And um, I, I believe that is very true to this day. I guess what I'm getting at is how was it helpful to you as you thought about becoming entering biology? Oh, it was more around the statistics. You know, how do you set up an experiment? How, how do you pro- um, pose a hypothesis and a set of experiments that you could disprove, essentially, right? That's the basic you know, premise of hypothesis-driven research um, and do it in a way that was statistically valid. And I think it's the math behind the statistics that was really important. I think these days, computation biology and those skill sets, um, coding, statistics, are hugely important for, you know, disciplines of biology. Okay. But it sounds like you're getting a nice, well-rounded set of of coursework uh, to, to enter, you know, some some mathematical rigor, some humanities there with German literature. Uh, you're thinking about even, you know, longer term about patients. It's the early 90s. Things are starting to happen. And how did this uh, get, how did you decide to find a, a graduate school or mentor or like get on a focus track? Yeah. So, you know, this is hindsight, right? You know, at the time, I don't think there was a lot of necessarily rational decision making about some of these career decisions. And I encourage any young listener out there to to take that into consideration as well. And when they're thinking about their own careers, I got to the end of my um, honours year and had done very well and um, was kind of being pushed or fast tracked into a graduate program. And I actually halted and thought, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And so um, in parallel, I had taken on uh, some night studies in journalism and writing. And I thought that I would maybe want to be a journalist, a scientific journalist or a scientific writer. And so um, in order to pay my bills, I got a job at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute um, in the laboratory of uh, uh, Jacques Miller and people in his laboratory. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jacques Miller was um, arguably the founder of uh, T-cells and the role of thymus in the immune, uh, immune response. Didn't he just win the Lasker? He did just win it. 60 years after this you know, landmark discovery. Yeah, I know. Uh, he, he's just incredible. And, you know, as a segue, and we can readdress this later if you like, he taught me immunology. I didn't know much about immunology until I started working in, in his lab. But wait a second. Why did you uh, have some cold feet there about science and graduate school? I, I just think, you know, to dedicate your life to um, science and, a, you know, a chunk of years during a graduate program, I, I just was not sure if that was 
where I wanted my life to land um, at the ripe old age of my early 20s, right? So, um, and I wanted to explore this passion of, of um, journalism. So I got a job, a technician. We were making some of the first um, uh, uh, induced reporter mice. So I was doing micro-injections of, um, uh, of genetic material into oocytes of, of mice and creating the first, some of the early transgenic mice. And, um, and then, but what I did was I set up a radio show. And this was on community radio called 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. And it was a fairly liberal, uh, it still is a fairly left-wing, liberal-leaning uh, 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 organization or station. Uh, they were a little reluctant to have a science program on there, but I convinced them <laughs> um, that we could have a show that um, talked about issues hopefully in a very non-biased way, um, whether they be national issues, international issues or local issues to the community. Um, and they they said yes. And so I did a lot of pre-recordings. We had a weekly show. Uh, it was reel-to-reel -reel back then, none of this digital technology. Uh -huh. And um, it was very successful. It got picked up um, by uh, National Public Radio in Australia uh, it's still going to this day. Um, wow. So this really presages your career as a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> and then at one, at one stage I realized, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to actually really dedicate myself to science. And I want to be on the other side of the microphone as an expert, so to say. So your day, to, your day job was doing this technical work on making transgenic mice mm -hmm. and uh you know the, the you night job <laughs> the night job was the radio you scratched that itch and you thought you know what i, I do want to yeah. you know drill in and become an expert on this thing yeah and again you know with hindsight i i think at the time i didn't really understand that the science and the storytelling could come together um, and that it's really important and uh that science or uh the pursuit of science is not about uncovering truth or looking for next frontiers or trying to describe the world around us, but it's actually telling people about that, whether it's writing an article for a journal, whether it's writing a thesis, whether it's talking to someone on the radio or at the dinner table, etc. Communicating it is really important. Yep, yep. So you're with Jacques Miller, was the, uh, and, and then, then what happened? So then um, as I was thinking about uh, taking on a, 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 a graduate degree, a PhD, I uh, thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I don't have to limit myself to Australia. There's a whole world out there that I could, you know, get involved with. Um, and one of the people who really affected me, and I'm not sure if he knows this or not, was um, uh, a professor we used to have on the radio show sometimes when I couldn't find anyone else to interview. You know, he was always my backup. He always had these great stories to tell, and this is – um, a man called Graham Mitchell, who had been uh, the head of the parasitology group at Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. He went on to become the director of the Royal Melbourne Zoo, and he's probably one of the first immunoparasitologists out there. Um, I think later on he went and became uh, one of the research heads at the CSL, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories in Australia. Um, and, and he and I got talking a lot as I was studying the immune system uh, with Jacques Miller and uh, thinking about how could we understand the immune system in the world around us, I got very interested in parasitology and um, thinking if we could 
cure parasites or understand tropical diseases, we might get a, you know, it might lead to better outcomes for people around the world. And so it was through talking to him both online and offline that he put me in touch with a very um, very close-knit and very um, academically uh, rich community of uh, parasitologists based largely out of England and in and the Netherlands. And so through some perseverance and letter writing, I got um, the possibility to go to Leiden University in the Netherlands to work with um, an incredible mentor, uh, a woman called Maria Yesenbach, uh, who's now the head of the, inst- of the Tropical Medicine or Parasitology Institute in Leiden. Um, and so off I went to the Netherlands to um, try and understand the role of the immune system in certain parasitic infections. Long way from home. It was fine. I was happy to go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Sad to leave, but happy to go. And so you did your PhD work there? I did my PhD work there. And it was involved um, with uh, 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 worm infections, actually, um, helminth infections, a particular infection called schistosomiasis. And uh, my professor, Maria, had a, a cohorts of patients um, or study sites around the world. And one of them was in Gabon in West Central Africa. Um, and they were running uh, studies out of the Elbridge Schweitzer Hospital in Gabon. And so, of course, I had to go down there a couple of times throughout my, my uh, graduate degree to um, get patient samples, um, isolate blood, um, and try and under, un, uncover what was the immunological response underpinning some of these diseases or leading to the lack of clearance of these parasites. So... Uh, for me, it was actually really understanding the early days of chronic immune activation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're seeing the world and how people live around the world and are affected by these things. So this is like it's, uh, quite it, an experience. It's real, right? Yeah, you know, working with some of the um, um, uh, particularly young children who are affected coming into the local hospitals. And, and some of these um, parasites can be very easily treated, like you know, helminth infections. It's just the life cycle that needs to be broken. Um, but uh, what we did was really, and what they're still doing, is really trying to understand what kind of immune response is being mounted, what kind of immune response is being mounted to different life cycles of the parasite. Um, and what are the rules that are driving these these chronic inflammations and immune responses? Down it sounds like pretty basic work: B cell, T cell responses, uh, before, which is what you need yeah. <laughs> before we yeah. can even begin to think about vaccine strategies exactly. or, or anything exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah, and I think you know, as, as certainly where I am now, I'm still in the world of immunology. Um, and the whole um, explosion in the last decade of understanding how the immune system works in the context of cancer has really brought me full circle around into, around to thinking about how chronic immune responses get um, initiated, set, and then regulated, whether it be um, a viral, long-term viral infection, parasitic infection, or, or, or arguably, you know, cancers. Mm-hmm. Now, this is uh, a great place to start because a parasite, I mean, by its definition, is quite foreign <laughs> to the immune system. Yeah. So you can, you can, even with the tools that we had then, I mean, we're able to like measure things quite, quite well and, and uh, articulate things that people couldn't. Well, I think uh, way back then, I think things have changed now. There's um, a lot more characterization of what 
what those foreign um, uh, parts of the what, what those foreign components of the parasites were that the immune system was seeing mm-hmm. and which one of those were activating and which ones of those were more, quote-unquote, tolerizing or immunosuppressive. And, you know, there are parts of the life cycle of parasites that turn on the immune response and they send off these kind of activation or danger signals um, and they set off the innate part of the immune response. And there, there are others that really drive this long-term um, chronic immunity whether it's an activated T cell, or even they can drive uh, B cell responses to induce these protective antibodies as well. So a lot of these um, worms or parasites in the body can be covered by the immune system that actually protects it from attack by different parts of the immune system. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. So how did you come to the U.S.? Was that for UCSF? Yeah. So um, uh, one of the frustrations I had at the time, the joys and frustrations I had at the time of my PhD was realizing that there was only so far you could go in understanding the immune system by looking at peripheral uh, readouts from human uh, patients. And uh, I say that cautiously because the world has turned dramatically since, you know, the the mid-90s. Um, but I realized that if I was going to be a true immunologist, I had to go back to understanding some basic principles of the immune system in, in, in the dish and in animal models or mouse models as well. And so I, um, I actually segued for um, two years through Berlin, through the German Rheumatology Institute in Berlin, and did a mini postdoc there uh, as an Alexander von Humboldt fellow and uh, started exploring uh, mouse models there. And then I moved on to UCSF um, to work with uh, Richard Loxley um, to understand how T cells regulate uh, chronic infections and then understand how these different subsets of T cells could be regulated at the genetic and epigenetic level. Now, what did you think was missing when you were just looking primarily through the Petri dish? Uh, Petri dish, you mean in my PhD or? Well, you, you talked about peripheral blood, uh, that, that only giving you sort of a, a partial view. Yeah, so I think what, um, uh, a, a few things. When you, there were limited tools for measuring the blood. There was not the large-scale uh, genetic and genome-wide analysis or computational power that we can bring to understanding human disease today. And uh, a lot of the business of the infection is where the parasite or the tumour resides and it's very difficult to get access to human tissue. 
And that is still a problem um, in understanding human disease and deconvolving what's going on in a tissue through the peripheral blood doesn't always add up. Um, and certainly without the tools, that's very hard to do. And so what was really interesting at the time, it was very hard back in those days to have high-impact papers um, in terms of um, peer-reviewed journals uh, that were around human immunology. And I would argue it's almost the reverse at the moment where um, the world, the scientific community is clamouring for more information around human immunology and we have toolboxes and toolkits with which to, to start tackling this problem. And I think we're learning more about the immune system that we had mapped out through a lot of animal models and we're kind of proving we're true and extending now some of those findings. But at least at that time, you, you knew that you had to do some in vivo work in the mouse models. I had to get granular. I had to get yeah. down to a very reductionist system with which to, you know, ask, ask hypotheses and test questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even now in my work uh, over the last couple of decades, flipping back and forth between understanding human disease, testing things in animal models, um, gaining insights from biology in animal models that you didn't predict or you specifically probed for and then and then seeing if that translated back into human disease, this kind of forward and re reverse translation is um, critical for understanding human disease and really a necessary part, I think, of a biologist's experimental life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When did you end up going to Genentech? So I went, I joined Genentech uh, 15 years ago and uh, I joined there as a scientist. I was recruited straight out of my postdoc, and uh, I moved into the immunology department. And my focus there was really on, I had worked primarily on CD4 T cells. Um, uh, there are different subsets gen generally of T cells uh, out there, CD4, CD8s, and some other cell types. CD4 had been my specialty, and the kind of effective functions and the growth factors and soluble factors they secreted and how they affected the immune system had been my bread and butter. And so I joined Genentech to think about those cells in the context of autoimmunity um, because we know in autoimmunity that those cells, when they're overactive, can start recognizing self, not foreign. We talked on earlier about things that are foreign to the body, like parasites. Sometimes the immune system is either tricked or um, escapes uh, mechanisms that blind it to self, and it starts attacking itself, like the joints or you know various things in myelin sheaths in the brain, uh, in MS, for example. And so... Um, yeah, so I, I, I had a research group that was focused on autoimmunity, largely around uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and then uh, later on in uh, lupus. Um, so just um, continuing to publish, doing the classic Genentech thing, like uh, <laughs> a little bit like academia, but in a company... Was it like that yeah, for you? Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I had been very uh, uh, worried. You know, I, I think I, I, even when I mentor today, a lot of students still say to me, oh, you know, industry is the dark side or if I, if I leave, I'm going to lose my kind of academic edge. And I think um, that's largely not true and it's especially not true at a company like Genentech where the uh, pursuit to uncover 
biology that's at the cutting edge that's truly going to make impact into patients' lives is just a core part of the identity of the organisation. And I should note, this is a very core part of a cultural identity that I want to build together with my colleagues at Arsenal Bio as well. Um, so, yes, I got to uh, work with incredible colleagues at Genentech and clinicians, um, we had access to amazing uh, clinical trials and clinical trial data, and um, we, we, yeah, we made some great insights. What kind of questions were driving you then? Yeah, so uh, again, I, I, I've always been a T-cell immunologist. I keep coming back to this. It's one thing that's very consistent in my career. Uh, we were really interested in looking at um, novel ways in which we can manipulate T-cells, uh, uh, to, to drive some kind of therapeutic outcome. Could we t turn uh, T-cells on or off in a joint and um, really decrease the inflammation? And so I was working with colleagues at Genentech early on, and we were trying to come up with genes that the immunologists or proteins or receptors on a cell surface that, you know, classic immunologists had kind of ignored because you know, they hadn't revealed themselves dramatically in certain animal models, uh, the, uh, the low-hanging fruit having been picked. And um, uh, it, it was through some of this work that, that myself and colleagues identified a, a very novel molecule uh, called TIGIT, T-I-G-I-T, that uh, stands for um, T-cell immunoglobulin item-containing molecule. <laughs> And it, uh, it, it turned out to have um, a very – we described its function. Uh, we named the gene. Uh, it turned out to have a very uh, dominant role in uh, CD8 cell responses. And this was – these were cells that I had uh, sadly, to my own misfortune, largely ignored in the autoimmune space, but turned out to be pivotal cells in regulating tumor responses. And as we uncovered uh, a, a really exciting role for this in uh, uh, tumors, uh, my work rapidly switched into more of an immuno-oncology uh, perspective. So these are the CD8 T cells. These are the so-called killer T cells yep. that we now know are important. You want to rev those up to uh, educate them, to unleash them, to attack the tumor. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I think it's no surprise to anyone at this stage that uh, doing that has provided um, in, incredible, incredible therapeutic benefit. So with the um, uh, discovery of uh, molecules and therapeutics targeting things like CTLA-4, of course, um, Jim Allison and others um, have the Nobel Prize for these, those really um, exciting discoveries. Uh, the PD-1, PD-L1 pathway, these checkpoint inhibitors, so molecules that regulate the, um, the activation and limit the expansion and effective function of cells, of immune cells. And that by blocking these or targeting these by a variety of mechanisms has just proved transformational for um, um, cancer patients. Definitely one of the big stories of cancer in the tens. Definitely. And then closely followed, I think, by the fact that um, not only can you manipulate cells in the body with various antibodies that target them and um, actually small molecules as well or uh, soluble factors and happy to talk more about what they might be, but also that you could actually engineer a cell outside of the body. So take a T cell out, engineer it, 
to make it a souped-up version or a better version of what it is and put that back into um, patient, the same patient and drive really um, incredible therapeutic benefit um, um, in that space as well. And the so-called CAR T-cell therapies. So this moved all very, very fast in this last decade. And you all along, you've been a T-cell immunologist. And suddenly, like, a lot of people are interested in your work. It's, it's no longer, um, you, know, um, you know, you and 50 colleagues. No, that's, it's, it's like 50 journal articles a day on this. Um, no, and one wouldn't have predicted that, you know, back in my 20s, thinking about where I was going to land in my career. I think it's, um, for me, it's always been following the science and then following, following the science um, that underscores patient disease and really trying to understand patient disease. And um, when you follow the science well, uh, it reveals itself. And so I think the world has come to understand that the immune system is really important in regulating lots and lots and lots of responses in in vivo. So clearly we're now in this cancer immunotherapy era Mm -hmm. with both uh, antibodies that stimulate immune reaction against tumors, but also um, cell therapies that that recognize certain antigens on their surface. Uh, Tons and tons of industry investment and, you know, scientific energy being poured into this area. Uh, You're at one of the the great science-based companies. You can do a lot of these things, but then you decide uh, this year or within the last year, to take the leap to a startup. I did. How, how did that happen? It was um, it was not planned, I have to say. But uh, as I was building out strategies for uh, uh, immuno-oncology or, or the um, ways we can manipulate the immune system to fight cancers, um, it became clear that uh, cell therapy was going to be part of the quote-unquote arsenal um, that a, a physician was going to end up having having to treat patients with. And uh, my career at Genentech had focused on large molecules of protein therapeutics, essentially, as well as small molecules, working with some of our small molecule colleagues around you know, epigenetic targets and, um, and then working out uh, ways with which we could selectively deliver these to tumors or somehow reduce side effects. There's lots of work in that field. But I'd also, together with my um, oncology colleagues, had become in, uh, really interested in uh, what are the factors that are driving an immune response. And we talked early on about, and I'll get directly to answer your question in a minute, but we talked early on about foreign, foreign things drive immune responses. And that it became very apparent that these um, these proteins called neoantigens um, also drived really robust anti-tumor immune responses that that would later on become exhausted. And these so-called neoantigens are antigens that um, become expressed in cancer cells as they mutate. And so they're not normally occurring in cells in the body. So when they start to appear in these cancer cells, the body sees them as foreign. Um, and, and Genentech, uh, together with a company called uh, Adaptive Biosciences, had, had, had done a deal um, trying to explore this, and they're exploring this, this landscape together. I became interested in then in, well, h- how do you, ha- ha- beyond that kind of T-cell receptor recognition, what else can you do to a cell 
to manipulate it in a very positive way that would make it a more powerful therapeutic. And if you think about a T-cell, not only is it the drug, like you want it to be a better effector killer, it's also capable of, in the right context, maybe even being the manufacturer, you know, the, the little product plant for a drug or delivering uh, payload as well. And I think this space is um, it's nascent. It's in its early days. You know, works through people like Carl June have shown that it's going. It works. You know, Carl June, Steve Rosenberg, other leaders in the field, is that um, it works. You can, in, you know, you can transfuse patients with um, souped-up T cells, CAR T cells, um, or T cells specific to things like KRAS mutations, and they can drive res responses, predominantly in the hematological space. But there's more evidence that this is true in solid tumors as well. So I was so excited to join a company that had this at its heart. Let me back up a second, and because there are lots of different ways to go after cancer. People talk about different modalities, right? There's large molecules and small molecules, and, and now we have cell therapy. You're making a bet here with your feet on cell therapy. Mm -hmm. Why Do you see that as like the end game? Is this like the ultimate way to go after cancer because... I don't know, tumors are just bound to develop resistance against one of those uh, existing modalities? Or do, do you have a view on, on like cell therapy is, is the place? I think cell therapy will be a very important part of a doctor's toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, I, I think there's very successful responses and, and absolute places for protein therapy and small molecule therapies, without a doubt. But they're not curative in a lot of cases, and so we need better therapies. One thing that really excites me about the possibility and potential of cell therapies is that um, if you can truly engineer in multiple components into the one cell, then you could arguably provide many different therapeutic modalities within the one cell. And so not only so, – so it may not be just be one drug, one target. You could combine multiple targets. For example, you could hit some exhaustion nodes, these checkpoint inhibitors. You can, you can optimize the binding of your T-cell receptor to its target antigen so you get um, better killing. You can start to manipulate exhaustion nodes or activation uh, or persistent nodes once we uncover a lot of these into engineer that into the cell. We can engineering chemokines or, or or molecules that are really important for cells to traffic through solid tumors to get um, to where they need to fight. Wow. This is the kind of thing that really forces you to stretch your imagination. Because yeah. like where we are today, I mean we have engineered cell therapies that go after a couple different validated antigens. CD19, BCMA. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are working around with TC, T cell receptors, but that hasn't really worked yet for solid tumors or. Well, it's early days. I think yeah. we don't know. I mean, those clinical trials are still in front of us, and we're all going to be learning from this collectively. I think, um, in, in terms of. Uh, so it was hard. So I just want to answer your question fully. It was very hard for me to leave um, my my position at Genentech because it is such an incredible organization. A startup and provides an opportunity to focus on one thing and just do it really well and do it at the forefront. Uh, when you don't quite know um, if it's going to work or not, you're really in front of the wave as as opposed to behind it. And Arsenal Bio really called me and spoke to my heart, scientific heart, for a few reasons. Um, 
the scientific founders and the CEO. So CEO is Ken Drazen, and and he's um, um, he's building a wonderful company with a really strong culture um, in a very matrixed organization. And the founders, every single one of our scientific founders is in the game, is publishing in the field, and has brought really unique ideas and technology to our organization. So things around gene editing, uh, CRISPR, understanding the complexity of all the different types of T-cell subsets that are uh, important or impaired in T-cell immunity in human disease. And, um, you know, experts in these uh, genetic synthetic circuitries, as we call them, um, ways of optimizing synthetic circuitry so we can make a real cell with synthetic components, so to speak. A cell that's engineered to do more than one thing. More M- than one thing. Multiple things. Yeah. Um, so hope- there are challenges there, of course, right? Yeah, such as. Well, the challenges is uh, the challenge is is working out what are the nodes we actually want to put in. So say, um, you know, I mentioned there are things out there that, that you know, other companies and other academic uh, uh, um, academic groups are really pursuing, you know, is it one exhaustion node? Is it one effector node? Um, how do we think about the nodules that we want to put together in a very um, organised structure? And uh, uh, how many will we need? And then... How do we actually technically do that, right? This uh, involves gene editing, and, in, 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 and uh, the, f- the field is limited by the size of the genetic editing that we can do. Um, the number of bases, like the number of bases, the number of nucleotides, uh, the stretches, you know, the sequences. The more things you put in, uh, if you string a bunch of genes together or a bunch of nodes that can regulate genes and their expression takes up genetic real, we call it, you know, real estate. And there's only so much real estate that one can uh, knock into a cell uh, and or overexpress uh, or, or, you know, with lentivirus systems. And uh, the field really has to solve this problem and we're hoping that we'll be able to tackle a lot of this with our technologies at Arsenal Bio. You know, when you look at, I mean, the word arsenal, like I said at the start of the show, it, it suggests this whole like set of, of weapons to go after, <laughs> to defend or go on offense or whatever. I mean, on your website, you list like a lot of things that got some buzz. There's cloud computing, there's computational biology, genome engineering, CRISPR, machine learning, synthetic immunology. It's all of this. And all of these tools that have become widely available allow us to see things we couldn't see and do things to cells that were previously incomprehensible. But you you can't be just one of those things. You have to like put the pieces together, right? Think, yeah, and I think this is one of the uh, uh, complementary and unique um, group that we have in Arsenal Bio. We have uh, clinical expertise, we have T-cell basic immunology expertise, and then we have computational and gene editing expertise. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we really want to do is to, you know, study the, the natural mechanisms of cellular regulation that, that have really been already defined or refined by evolution and deconvolve those and then uh, put them back together in a way that um, these natural components in a way that um, don't exist right now, but we know that they're important in terms of immune evolution. 
And the way to deconvolve that is to um, understand human disease, uh, set up a lot of functional uh, models and um, and screens and um, run these through um, very analytical programs um, in a way that we can hope to deconvolve really rational pathways in the immune response. Now, juxtapose- Cloud computing will be important for that. Why, why is cloud computing important? Just because of the scale of the genetic information and the sequencing that we'll be generating and that we need to um, uh, um, understand. So what's the kind of the basic substrate here of samples? Human, like healthy versus diseased, and then comparing it with some of the animal models like you were referring to earlier, like how you would flip back and forth. Yeah. So I think um, there's many ways you could tackle this approach. And... Uh, you know, we are currently uh, focusing predominantly at Arsenal Bio on, on understanding human disease and trying to model that in a dish. And so we're taking, you know, data that we are generating and also taking advantage of our data from our scientific founders and, and data in the field about uh, what are the different uh, states of T cells in, in human, tumor, human tumors, uh, how do they differ to normal tissue, and that's predominantly probably easiest to um, uh, uncover in peripheral blood back to <laughs> the problem I had as a, as a PhD student <laughs> is now a good thing to um, have at, at this stage. Um, and then we're also setting up a bunch of in vitro models where, where we're trying to capture these disease states and understand them. And then... Um, run genetic perturbations to see if we can uncover nodes so we can flip cells into different states or we can stop them from becoming exhausted, we can drive them to have better effective function. Um, yeah. How many CRISPR edits do you think you can make on a T-cell? How many CRISPR edits can we make on a T-cell? Well, I mean, how many different functions can you... You mentioned there's limited real estate. Yeah. So there's a limited number of things that you can do to dial up or dial down. I think you can do uh, actually multiple CRISPR edits. Um, one thing to bear in mind in the context of trying to make a, uh, a T-cell or a, or a car T-cell or a car-like T-cell is that um, there's a manufacturing and clinical component to this as well. Like uh, the more edits you do, the more manipulations you have to make, the longer that you know time that takes. We're trying to do these in one construct, so it's a one-shot um, integration. And um, the side of that integration is going to be very, very important. It could vary depending on what modalities we want to go after. Um, but if you think about uh, the challenges of CAR T-cell therapy, it's especially at the individual level, is how can we get cells out, um, um, do our CRISPR um manipulations, manufacture those cells in a very short amount of time and get that back into a patient in a way that um, just decreased cost of good in general, both in the manufacturing process and in the time that patient is spending in hospital as well. That's what they call the vein-to-vein time. Exactly. When you, you give your cells and then they go to a lab, yeah. get yeah. edited, manufactured, and yeah. sent back. And that can't be three months, four months, six months. It has to be days. Yeah. Um, and this is a challenge for everyone in the field, and it certainly will be for us, and it's key, you know, and front and center to one of the, the, the goals that we want to try and, and attack with some of our platforms and technology. 
Um, and of course, this problem, just at a general level, may be different for different tumors. Uh, it may be different for um, different states of tumors, different types of solid tumors. And so um, understanding the rational rules uh, with which we can genetically edit, and then those rules might be different depending on what we're editing into those cells. And how those edits are read out could differ depending on the CAR and the CAR receptor interaction with the tumor antigen. And for different, uh, I think there, there are no rules right out there at the moment for about what, what a CAR T cell, what are the rules of a CAR T cell interacting with its tumor antigen? And then what are the rules around all the signaling that goes into the T cell um, uh, beyond just um, TCR activation and, you know, your favorite activation co-stimulatory molecules? This sounds like a lot of pretty basic stuff. I mean, dare I say, kind of academic-like. Yeah, but it's very cool, right? I mean, just think about, you know, where the field of monoclonal antibodies was decades ago. Um, and certainly early therapeutics, you'd have a target, you'd screen, you'd come up with one antibody. And then, you know, you know you'd then work out if it worked in the clinic. Oops, it's immunological. Oops, you know, it's, it's working, it's not now. We um, have very sophisticated understanding of protein structures, different um, um, different epitope binning, so you can start to make different antibodies to the one target. Same with small molecules. Instead of just doing these random screens, you can do structure-based design. Cell therapy will move into this space where it's a lot more, there'll be a lot more rules and it's a lot more obvious about the kind of manipulations that you can do genetically, the size of those inserts, and then what a T cell can actually tolerate. Um, and, you know, it'll be a, a balance, right? You want to turn it on enough so it has a robust effective function, but you don't want it to die either, right, and reach senescence. So you don't want it be, to become exhausted, but you want it to become activated enough. And so I think we still have to understand how this is going to work in a dish and then how this will actually perform in patients. I mean, it sounds like you're building off of this foundation of 20 years of experience in the basic immunology of T cells, and there's still some questions that, you know, new questions that keep coming to you and that need to be answered before you can go full throttle yep. ahead with a therapeutic strategy, like, yep. okay, this is the target and this is the modality. I think once those, if, if I'm hearing this correctly, once you have some of those basic questions answered, then you ought to be able to move quickly on a development plan. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, like most science, especially in uh, industry, it's, there'll be parallel tracks, right? Um, you know, smaller companies, really, we will have to focus fairly quickly um, on, on how we're going to deliver, right, on our, on our product and our first clinical experience, um, based off the um, all these different components that we're building. And then we'll have parallel tracks, which will be building out the platform to inform the next generation. And then one could even imagine we could apply this to non-oncology settings. How can we, how can we um, take the learnings from the, the synthetic circuitries that we're building up or understanding of these different uh, regulatory pathways, and how can we then build them like Lego blocks uh, into other cell types or even other diseases. Mm -hmm. Maybe come full circle to autoimmunity. That could that could very well be the case. And I know you know there's certainly people out there thinking about you know cell therapies for autoimmunity, especially if you think about things like regulatory T cells or um, that that are that are very important for switching off immune responses. What's the most exciting thing and the scariest thing about going to a startup? 
Oh, the, the, the most exciting thing is just working with a bunch of very motivated people all in the one direction. And, and that's not to say I haven't had that in, you know, previous uh, experiences, but there's this sense of like everyone's in, everyone's working hard, everyone's working together. It's a solid team and we're in it. Like we're all in it, single swim together. Uh, that's really exciting. The, the additional part that is just really wonderful uh, coming in as a CSO and working with the rest of the executive team is how do you build a company um, kind of from scratch? What's the culture? How do, we, how do we reward people? How do we motivate? What's the vision? Where do we want to be five years from now? Where do we want to be 10 years from now? Um, how do we build external relationships? How do we have relationships with members of the board and the founders? And it's um, everything. Everything has to be mapped out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a whole people component when you're yeah, this. Yeah, uh, and, and it's wonderfully important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jane Grogan, thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Oh, Luke, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>